a recap of last week's episode. My siblings and I were recently began fighting against our parents' torture and molestation when another issue began rearing its ugly head. I started noticing the sudden urge through all the chaos, the multiple weekdays at Bible study, Sunday services, and choir practices, which I wasn't privy to, but seemed all too familiar. Suddenly, I was getting feelings of sexual urges, and they were often overpowering. Although I hadn't had sex yet, I developed this obsessive imagination detailing sexual acts like writing a 30-minute TV script. There were girls and boys I would be attracted to in church and at my middle school. I had full-on relationships with them in my mind, but never touched them physically. From those impressions, I began yearning for the real thing, and at that point, I wanted it to be physical. But this wouldn't happen until I was 18. One guy in particular was highly alluring, and we would often tease and play around with each other. There were many conversations and touches here and there, and even wrestling, but never anything sexual. We talked about it before I left for college, but I chickened out. The idea of a possibility was more intriguing to me, and he was cast in many of my imaginative short series. At age 15, my life began to change rapidly. I had already noticed girls, but I started seeing boys too. It was a comfort level. I had hanging around other boys. I didn't feel threatened or that something would come out of nowhere and blindside me. I wasn't anxious around guys, and remnants of the past did not creep up in my mind. Anyone who's worked in the kitchen at a restaurant knows that it attracts all manner of people, most of them with exciting pasts, intriguing vices, and colorful and suggestive habits and predilections. Meaning, my virgin ears learned a lot about sex from those who had it all too often. And mind you, I was already inquisitive because although I wasn't having sex, my body and mind felt like they were in a race to accomplish a goal my religious upbringing was against, sex before marriage. I targeted the young ladies at our local video rental store and befriended them to give me a membership. Once I received said membership, I began taking out R-rated movies. From there, I found my way to the back of the video store where the more adult content was stored. I remember first taking out those two adult movies, rushing home to slip them into my VCR. It was a school night and I waited for my parents to fall asleep. So I ran to my room in the basement, popped in the tape in my VCR and saw things I could never have imagined. See, those buying gay videos created an intrigue I never could have imagined. And my sexual thirst grew like a balloon being inflated with helium until there was no more room. My ideal relationship was to cherish, love, respect, honor, and obey. This was what I learned in church and what I thought would be my life. I wanted a big house with a white picket fence, a beautiful dark-skinned wife, two boys, one girl, a pair of twins. That was my childhood and teenage dream. 
But as fate would have it, I ended up at his girlfriend's house the next day to shut off her cable. To my surprise, the same guy was standing in the dining room when she let me in the house. Our eyes made four as the girlfriend left the house to go to the bank. As soon as the door slammed shut, I looked at the guy. There was obvious tension in the room. So I said in my mind, a closed mouth don't get fed, and asked the guy, you wanna mess around? As we finished, his girlfriend walked through the front door yelling, where y'all at? The guy yelled back, we're in the basement. As the girlfriend walked down the basement stairs, he pretended he was showing me where the cable installer had made the wire penetration into the house, commenting that they had done a not so good job. I said, yeah, you're right. They didn't do a good job with the install and pretended to look at the wiring. This pattern of selfishness and carefree attitude continued for years. And the more I got what I sought sexually, the more pervasive I became until the idea and act of having sex began controlling my life. So much so that I had to have sex all the time. And now it was sometimes in odd and peculiar places. I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. At one point, I saw two guys with girlfriends, alternating them daily, depending on who got possessive or got into their feelings. Having multiple situations simultaneously was like meeting someone on the weekends just because I wanted to. I had just turned 27 when I finally admitted to having a sexual addiction. That evening, I decided to step back from having sex for a while. I began losing interest and the idea of having sex with a guy began turning me off. So I stopped having sex for two months. God was working on me during that time and I didn't even know it. I became unattracted to guys and started dating women again, but that didn't last either. God kept talking to me about working on myself the whole time, but I wasn't hearing it. What they said, beware what you ask for, especially when you're asking God. I was too ignorant at the time to spell out exactly how I wanted God to help me with my sexual addiction. So he culminated it into a twofer plus one. Everything that would transpire afterward would forever change my life and path and caused me to lose my voice for a year and a half, develop a significant stomach complication, and become celibate. Before being delivered by God from my sexual addiction, I would seek out whoever that person was and approach them, tell them precisely what was on my mind, and if they were down, we would devise ways to commence the sexual act. Now, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm focusing on semen retention and higher levels of spirituality. I'm not saying I will remain celibate for the rest of my life. Now that God has allowed me to see and feel people, who they are and whether they would be my match, it brings more comfort to know that I was never missing out and will be ready and available when that person who is my match comes along. Welcome to Journey 365. I'm your host, Patrick A. Kelly. So before we get started, 
please join us in an open prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here tonight. Uh, we thank you for all that you have enabled us to do and all that you will enable us to continue to do uh, moving into the future. We thank you for everyone who has supported us, those who are seen and unseen. We thank you, dear Father, for uh, blessing us and also for allowing the show to grow exponentially, dear Father. Lord, we ask that you continue to send people to us who are looking uh, to be delivered, who are looking to share their journey, and through them sharing their journey, be delivered. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining us again. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are on our sixth episode, which is a total of all the episodes that we've done because uh, episode four, which was torture and molestation under the guise of Christianity, that was three parts. So we are basically doing uh, eight episodes now, but this is officially our sixth episode, which is uh, Abandoned and the Love of a Stranger. Abandoned and the Love of a Stranger. So this one is, is particularly one of my favorite because I'm speaking on just a major crisis that I had in my life or something that I'd gone through and how it still stayed with me till this day. And what's so pivotal is that as I was writing it out today and reading it and started recording, I just just teared up and I, I started crying because I still felt those feelings that I felt of abandonment. Also, with uh, the love of a stranger, this is going to be a great, a great uh, insight uh, for you all. And I know you all will enjoy it. It's definitely one of my favorite. I think this is one of the most special people I've ever met in my life uh, who was a professor of uh, theater who, you know, I had such an amazing experience with. Um, so, you know, I, I am really excited. I, I want to thank you all. I'm beginning so many wonderful feedbacks from just different people. You know, last episode that we did, it, it spoke on my sexual addiction and it got grown. I mean, it was definitely grown. You know, that's why sometimes I put a disclaimer on these episodes to let people know that this is grown stuff that we're talking about. And, you know, I, I detailed some of my escapades, uh, not all of them, but the one that was that were a lot more uh, pivotal uh, to getting me to where I am right now, where I'm not having sex at all. And I feel amazing. I can describe how I'm feeling and, and what I'm going through and where my life is right now. But for you to actually experience that, that's the only way you'll be able to get that true feeling. I'm talking about being 100% okay with yourself, being 100% okay that you might not be dating, being 100% okay that you are not having sex and that it's a possibility that you are waiting, even in celibacy and abstinence, that you are waiting uh, for that right person um, to be able to uh, commit to and to be able to, to be 100 with or to go all the way. Um, and that's with me. It's like once I once I really just delved into the whole celibacy and abstinence and stuff like that, God shot started showing me all these things. And you guys can hear it in my voice right now. I'm very excited because um, it's one thing to be able to choose from your eyes and choose from how a person look and 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 how they make you feel and stuff like that. But it's another thing to choose because you have that spiritual connection. And uh, now it's like I'm walking around like an antenna and I'm looking at all these people and even the people who 
uh, were my type back in the day or still is my type. Um, the, the, the power that I used to let them have over me or the power that I used to let myself have over me uh, has I have control over that. So although I might be sexually attracted to somebody, I'm not going to be going all full blown. Yo, I got to have you. I'm up in your face and I'm, you know, running game. I'm having this conversation. I'm like, yo, we planning how we going to get down and all, get down and dirty. You know what I'm saying? So it's just amazing to have that control. You know, and I just thank God for putting me in this space right now to be able to be emphatic about where I'm at in life. I'm 51 years old. I feel amazing. I look amazing. Thank God for that. I work out. I'm healthy. I've, I've, I've done so many different things, changing my eating habits and now I'm, I'm, I'm uh, venturing over to being pescatarian and a little bit of vegan and stuff like that, cutting out the, the chicken and the, the turkey and the, the beef and, and, and things like that. And just eating a lot more vegetables, and a lot more fruits and working out and being stable mentally, uh, um, uh, physically and my spiritual game. Oh, thank you, Jesus. My spiritual game is up there and I can't wait. I'm in and, and with me personally. I'm continuously transforming and transcending. And when I say that transcendency is amazing, it is just as it is the definition of transcending or transcendency or whatever, transcendental or whatever you want to call it. Man, just go look it up, bro. And, and I tell folks and I see my people all the time and I see them. I said, man, I can't wait for you to walk, start walking in your true purpose. Start walking in your trueness because I see it for them, but they're not there yet and they got to work on it. But how you work on it, you take one thing at a time, man. Work on that thing. First, you got to admit that, that that problem is there. You got to be brave enough to want to even try to attack that problem. You know what I'm saying? Attack it full force. Attack it like you're hungry. Attack it like you're ready to eat, man, and you need some food in your body and your soul right now. Attack that thing, man. Ask God for that deliverance, man. When God give you that deliverance, move on to the next thing. So yeah, this is Patrick K. Kelly for At Journey 365. I, like I said, I'm excited and I'm about to take you guys into episode six, which is Abandoned and the Love of a Stranger. Oh man, I hope y'all enjoy it, man. Hey, I want all of y'all to send me messages and stuff like that just to let me know how y'all feeling. And if you haven't um, listened to episode one, the message and all the other ones that I've done, please go back and check it out. Some of these uh, episodes are from grown folks because I'm talking about stuff that I went through and stuff that, you know, I don't want children to to hear. Uh, but there are some things that children can hear, like, uh, you know, um, you know, my deliverance, the parts uh, of my deliverance as I'm going through all these different episodes. So thank you. Thank you guys again uh, for being here, for listening and uh, for supporting me. Enjoy. Here is Abandoned and the Love of a Stranger, Episode 6, Journey 365. Disclaimer. This story will trigger your emotions. It may upset you and anyone else listening. If you need to ready yourself or remove children from the room, please do so now. I'm Patrick A. Kelly, and this is my journey chronicled by significant incidents in my life that made me who I am today. Coming from Jamaica and immediately forced into the American school system challenged my sister Donna and me. Not only was it a culture shock that posed many difficulties, but attending school and the curriculum was different. And to pile on more to our negative, 
Our diction was lacking because of the thick accent of our Jamaican Patois. Our reading skills were low and we didn't know our timetable. Our mother hearing this from teachers placed more stress on her as she had to get into a mommy mode and get us up to par with the grade our age predicted we should be in. To do that, there were many long evenings during the school year where she presented lessons requiring us to read short children's stories and write small essays or describe what we read. We were also made to learn our timetable and recite it verbatim without mistakes. If we did make mistakes, the corporal punishment would be beatings. Having gone through what was frequently torture, as our mother's patience wasn't gentle and nurturing, I began to excel in school from middle on. In my freshman and sophomore years of high school, my English teachers, uh, especially Miss Walker, made an indelible impression on me that transformed my way of thinking and understanding and created a burning love and passion for writing. During a class session with another of my English teachers, where I had to write an essay describing what I had read from an assigned reading, that teacher made me realize that I had a way of telling stories with a descriptive nature that came naturally. Unbeknownst to this teacher, I knew I had a supercharged imagination. He said that as he read my story, it felt like he was transported into the story itself. Hearing this just fueled the fire that had already become ablaze. I also began to excel in my vocational assignments, which were electronics. When my teachers realized I had already received training from my stepfather, it made my classes easier which propelled me and one of my good friends, Latanya Wallace, to become head of our class and receive a mayoral ceremony and award, assigned college prep classes, and gain entry into the work-study program my senior year. This was how I began working for the cable company, which I discussed in episode five. That summer, I was also surprised when educators told me I was selected for Morgan State University's summer engineering program. But all the good news and accolades were being overshadowed by the lack of support from any parental figure. When you beat a child into submission, telling him or her that getting an education is the most important thing and that he or she must excel in school, a lot of the luster becomes lacking if you don't show up stand up in support of their efforts. For all of our accomplishments, mine and my siblings, I can't remember a time when our parents actually showed up to support us except for high school graduation. When I had my tennis matches, my parents were not there. When I received my mayoral award, they were MIA. When I was in ROTC and had to march in parades, they weren't there. When I became top of our electronics program and was awarded work study, my parents were nowhere in sight. When I got the call that I would be a part of Morgan State University's summer engineering program, that too fell on deaf ears. Even as I applied for student loans and needed $500 to stay in school during the final quarter of my freshman year in college, I asked my mother if she could send the money to me. She lied and said that she didn't have it. 
No matter how much I excelled, my parents didn't support me. But when they needed to be driven somewhere or wanted money because I was working, their interest was suddenly piqued. See, as my siblings and I became older and our parents couldn't torture us as they did when we were younger, we began filling the roles like indentured servants. My sister did all of the cooking and cleaning. And because I got my driver's license at age 16, I became the driver, the chauffeur. As neither of our parents had a license at the time, I had to drive them everywhere. And I mean the taunting, arduous tasking of driving all around town, waiting on them, making numerous cigarette and Pepsi runs, dropping them off at work, picking them up, and any other malleable driving tasks they deemed necessary. I was always there for them, but where were they for me when I needed them the most. I remember in high school, some of my friends and classmates used to think I was rich because I was one of the only kids in high school, especially senior year, who drove a car to school. Little did they know, I was the family chauffeur and often had to leave school or when school ended for the day, go and drive my parents around town. The kids even wondered why I was able to wear designer clothing. What they also didn't know was that I wore designer clothes because I had been hustling since I was 12 years old, carrying people's groceries and later at a real job. And I bought what I wanted to wear with my own hard earned money. I was elated when I learned I was in the summer engineering program at Morgan State University. Being in the program allowed me to see what the iconic HBCU engineering program was all about. And I would meet new and interesting people my age. Since long ago, I've forgotten many facts about how Morgan State ran their summer engineering program. But three specific things have stayed with me all these years. The first was a creative drawing competition using AutoCAD, a computer-aided design and drafting software. Second was this beautiful black Asian teenage boy who was mesmerizing. And the third was me receiving an award and doing a speech at the awards banquet dinner at the end of the program. Many kids from all over were a part of the engineering program that summer at Morgan State University. If you ask me how many there were, I couldn't tell you, but housing, meals, and curriculum were already set up for us. There were two to a room. A few others were three or four to a room. I remembered meeting everyone and how one person in particular out of everyone there stood out to me like someone had placed a spotlight on them. There were these black Asian brothers who were a part of the summer engineering program and were obviously different from everyone else. I had never met in person people who looked like them before, so I became enthralled with both of them, especially the taller brother with this beautiful head of long hair. As we introduced ourselves, they were from one of the counties miles from Baltimore. This taller brother in particular had a subdued personality. It was like they were good looking and they knew it yet not wanting to be bothered. But I knew, knowing me, that would not last for long, especially them being around me and knowing the magnetism I had towards boys. As we all began to know each other, 
My subtle yet extremely outgoing nature made many people curious about who I was. I dressed with style and bright clothing, so my dark complexion stood out. At the time, I didn't even realize that I was so competitive, but in everything we did, I made sure I stood out and was being watched. From being the last one on the dance floor and being called the dancing machine to winning the art contest, I had to excel and everyone took notice. It wasn't until we all attended a party the school threw for us towards the end of the program that uh, this black Asian guy and I had a moment. Uh, to know someone's true nature, get them away from everyone else and make them feel comfortable. At least this was what I had learned and didn't realize at the time until years later. But one day, this guy happened to be in the bathroom by himself, which wasn't planned. And we acknowledged each other with a sign of approval, lightness, and we looked and smiled at each other and said a friendly hello. As we stared at each other, no one else was in sight and there wasn't any pretentiousness that caused us to append our gestures, speech, attention, or body language. I was 17, and this guy was my second male crush. I thought about him for many years. Now his face is just a blur to me, but I remember that moment we had, like it was yesterday, adding to my adulation for red bones with long hair. During the summer engineering program, we were introduced to AutoCAD. The instructors told us how the software worked and instructed us on how to use it. They also said whoever had the best design using the AutoCAD program would receive an award at the closing dinner banquet. Not having used this program before, I became fascinated and I asked many questions. Learning was and still is one of the most fascinating things about my person and this wasn't an exception. I learned how to maneuver through the program and began drawing one of my favorite video game characters. At that time, Mario of Super Mario Brothers. I was selected as the contest winner once everyone had turned in their drawings. And I was told that I would receive an award at the closing banquet dinner and give a speech. Being told I had won the contest, I called my mother. It was the middle of the day on a weekday. And when she answered the phone, I told her that I had just won the contest for the engineering program and I wanted her to be there at the celebration banquet where I would receive my award. It was like I was wasting my time. She didn't care at all. She told me that she wasn't coming. I had already surmised my stepfather wouldn't show up because he had turned into a drunk and would oftentimes go missing for days at a time. Knowing that my efforts would be futile I still begged her to come to the awards banquet, but she again told me that she didn't have time to go to no dinner. I was saddened by this, with all the disappointments they enacted on us as a kid, and even into my later teenage years, I always made reservations for them. That whole day, all I thought about was how lonely I would feel there by myself with no support from the family. As the days crept by, dwindling down to the day of the banquet dinner, I became even more fretful. I was sad, even though the other kids didn't know it, watching and listening to them talk about all who were showing up for them made me depressed. Everything I had accomplished that summer went down the drain 
as I felt like it was a waste because my family wasn't there to support me. I remember walking across the campus to the auditorium where the banquet was held. As I walked through the double doors of the building and looked around at the round tables, perfectly set with blue tablecloths, dinnerware and chairs, and staffing putting the final touches on the stage and podium, I felt lost. I felt abandoned. I had no one, no one cares about me, ran through my mind as I walked to any random empty table. As all the other kids from the program poured in with their families, I was already sitting at a table by myself. A few of them came to sit by me, but it was as if I was stranded in the desert, looking at unsurmountable miles of sand to overcome and being inundated. I felt defeated. I felt invisible. As I sat at one of those tables, I began to stare at the door wishing by some dumb luck or sheer chance that somebody, anybody would just show up for me. But that was just me being hopeful. The room began filling with families and I kept staring at the door as I sat there alone. Later, as I heard my name as the winner coming from the stage and being called up to receive my award, when I stood up and looked across the entire room, everyone seemed to enjoy being with their family. Yet. I felt so out of place. With one last glance before making my way to the podium, I stared at the double doors, entranceway to the auditorium, hoping that someone was coming, but just running late. The doors never opened again. As I began placing one foot before the other, walking towards the stage, it felt like slow motion and everyone's eyes were on me. When I got to the podium, I was awarded best drawing for AutoCAD and was asked to give a speech. I stepped to the podium and stared at what seemed like a sea of people before me. I pretended to be excited and composed, but I was dying inside. I slightly turned my head to the right in the direction of the door and watched diligently, hopefully hoping to see someone, anyone coming through the doors at that point. During my speech, I told everyone why I had drawn Mario from the video game Super Mario Brothers and how much I loved playing the game. I told them I had always had an affinity for art and that learning was meaningful and made me come alive. Everyone clapped and I then grabbed my award and proceeded back to my seat. Yet again, the walk was in slow motion and deep inside I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed as I walked. I held my head down because I didn't want anyone to see the look on my face. It was as though I had traveled to an unknown city, didn't have a penny to my name, and knew no one. No one showed up. Being there with all these strangers and their families, and my family is missing in action, created anxiety and embarrassment. I watched the other kids laughing and talking with their families, and I felt truly abandoned. It was a feeling I had never felt before and something I wished for no one. Growing up, I felt neglected before and unloved and cared for. But that day was the worst. Here, I won a competition given by a prestigious organization and was receiving an award for being the exemplary child for doing good. Yet no one showed up. No one came to support me after all the beatings to do good in school no one came in support of me doing well. At the end of the banquet, 
I had to catch the bus home, and it was a grueling ride. All these thoughts began running through my head. I became upset even more. I was angry. It was the longest bus ride returning to a house where I knew no one cared about me. When I did arrive home, it was later in the evening, and the home was dimly lit, and both of my parents were in their bedroom talking. Before walking by their bedroom door, I placed a trophy on the shelving unit in the hallway where all my other awards had accumulated. My parents said something to me, but I didn't hear them. I just walked downstairs to the basement where my bedroom was. I threw myself in bed and just laid there thinking. The entire day began running through my mind. Amit Ray says, There are miracles and glory in every child. Our glory lies in empowering them to flourish their glory. Man, why couldn't I have parents such as Amit? Where would I be today? That fall, I chose to attend a college in Western Maryland instead of Morgan State University, but left the school before the final quarter because my mother wouldn't give me $500 to pay my tuition. I was upset, but everything happened the way they are intended. I appreciated all the people I had met at school in Western Maryland, but that would be the end. The following semester, I enrolled at Morgan State University with a concentration in communications. During one of my 200-level acting classes, my professor said that morning, we would do a new warm-up. See, every morning we did a warm-up, but this morning was a totally different warm-up that we have never done before. This warm-up consisted of partnering with one other person. Once we were partnered, and my partner was a professor, we had to grab and hug each other very tightly to feel each other deeply. As we stood there holding each other, it became tranquil. And then suddenly, one of the female students began crying out loudly. As a female professor and I held each other, I thought, why was this young lady crying? It wasn't until she began stating that her mom had died and she never got to hug her. It felt like I was gut punched with what she was feeling. Another female student also began crying, saying that she was pregnant and was afraid because she didn't have any support. As we stood there, it felt like the air in the room began feeling very heavy. The room, which was a theater, started getting warm. I felt a tear fall to my cheek. Suddenly, my professor began crying. And as she wept, she bellowed how her young son was her best friend. And now that he was getting older, she could feel that friendship getting weaker and weaker. She was saddened by this. As I listened to everyone, all the guys in the class too, I began crying. But it was a cry I had never experienced before. I had carried around the baggage of my father not being in my life and how I detest what he did. And then my mother and my stepfather, you know, how they treated us, how they tortured us growing up. And I bawled. I bawled as I held my professor as tightly as I could. I too never really grabbed and held my mother like that. And it was as if I was hugging for the entire life I had missed out on, just hugging. I cried long and hard, we all did. My professor held me as I became so emotional I could not stand. She comforted me, and that was the only time I felt what it meant to be mothered. I felt loved, I felt cared for, I felt seen. 
Those 60 minutes were and have been the pivotal point in my life. And it is one of the reasons I can be here today telling you my story. I left the theater and headed across campus. I felt different. I felt changes, renewed, worthy of being the man that I was becoming, someone who was in touch with his emotions. I thought if every black man, if every black boy had the opportunity to hold someone tightly and let out their anger and emotions, how much better we all would be. God places people in our life at the most opportune time, when you need it and when you're wanting and deserving of change. Everything I had gone through, all the things I had learned and all the people I had met who influenced my life led me to be the person I am today. And I am so appreciative to be able to tell you my unadulterated story so that you know that it is okay to speak your truth. There's healing in the truth. There's healing in the truth for everyone involved. At age 51, I stopped running from God and I fully embraced my destiny to the calling to be the message. To be the message and to do this podcast and the show, I had to lay myself bare as I'm doing now. So you can understand that this isn't this isn't a game at all. God is using me. He is using me to be the message for you. And he says, come as you are and be delivered. But to do that, you have to bear yourself to him and everyone because of our strength. God don't give us more than we can handle. And if he puts you through something like what I've gone through, or what you have gone through, or what you're going through now, it means that you are strong enough to handle it. And he didn't give you that. He didn't give you all of that blessing for you to hold on to it. He gave it to you so you can share it with others so that they too can be blessed and delivered and know the love of God. So I thank you so much for being here with me right now because you have had so many other things that you could be doing. Thank you for starting this journey with me and thank you for your support. I can't wait to meet each and every one of you to hear your story for my continued deliverance and for the deliverance of others. Good night. Patrick A. Kelly owns the copyright in and to all content in and transcripts of At Journey 365 podcast, with all rights reserved, as well as his right to publicity. You are welcome to share the transcript up to a maximum of 400 words in media articles such as the AJC and other notable media platforms on your personal website, in a non-commercial article or blog post, and or on a personal social media account for non-commercial purposes, provided that you include an attribution to At Journey 365 podcast and link back to the At Journey 365 podcast URLs. Media outlets with advertising models are permitted to use excerpts from the transcript per the above. No one is authorized to copy any portion of the podcast content or use Patrick A. Kelly's name, image, or likeness for any commercial purpose or use, including without limitation, inclusion in any books, ebooks, book summaries or synopsis, streaming media, TV, film, or on a commercial website or social media site, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threads, TikTok, X, etc., that offers or promotes you or another products or services. For the sake of clarity, media outlets are permitted to use photos of Patrick A. Kelly from the At Journey 365 podcast or license photos of Patrick A. Kelly from commercial image platforms. Content shared from Tim.blog.